0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Often, as you know, we like to honor the male allies who are actively supporting our fight for equity in the workplace. Today's guest is one of my favorite public servants, Charles Stone of Belmont, California. Welcome, Charles. So happy to have you here today.
1: Good morning, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be on, and let me just tell you, I think your show's fantastic, and I think what you're trying to do for equity in the workplace is so important.
0: We have fun with it. We're serious about it, but we have fun with it as well. I wanna shout out to you uh, as a parent. You and your wife do such a great job. Folks, they have two daughters, and they uh, lead by example not only, but they also give them great opportunities to uh, break all the stereotypes. I mean, those girls have, um, you know, opportunities in athletics and opportunities to lead by doing and they're out there. They have a voice and they are respected regardless of age and stage in life. And I love it. I love it. So good for you for being not only a good public servant, but a great dad. Um, So I wanted to say that before we get started. I know a lot about you. I respect you immensely. I adore what you do as a a husband, a father, a parent, and a public servant. But for those who don't know you as well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm a San Mateo County native. I was born actually in San Francisco because there was a A strike-on at Mary's Help, which is what Seton Hospital used to be, and UCSF was the only hospital delivering at the time, but came home to Daly City and have never had a permanent residence anywhere but San Mateo County since 1975. I was raised by a a strong woman. My mom uh, graduated from Northwestern with honors and got a master's in speech pathology. She had always wanted to work with children with special needs And she fulfilled that dream and after a number of years teaching in the public schools decided that she thought she could do a better job outside the structure and restrictions and and restraints she faced in that system and she started her own school in 1975 called the mary stone school in san mateo and uh, brought me along with her and i didn't have daycare or preschool ever i my my dad was a professional church musician voice teacher, so he's had some flexibility, and he would sit with me some days, and we'd go on errands, and do all kinds of fun stuff, and the days that he had obligations, she would just take me to school with her. Uh, so I, uh, I
0: I love that, Charles. That's, again, breaking stereotypes. I think that's terrific.
1: Yeah, it's it's been really important to me, and sometimes I, I take it for granted, because, you know, I, it was just my normal. It was my reality. My great-aunt was a uh, uh, the president of a savings and loan in Des Moines, Iowa in the 70s wow. and, and 80s. And, you know, the, I, I've had very positive, strong women role models in my life uh, as long as I've, I've been on this planet. And uh, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate for that because it helped frame my outlook on life.
0: That is so great. That is so great. Well, framing. speaking of framing your outlook on life, what exactly compelled you to do what you do now?
1: well you know probably the most important factor in, in getting me to run for office was my kids you know i looked at our city and i had gotten involved with our schools and i was a member of the education foundation board serving as endowment chair and and i didn't like what i saw in terms of the city council's viewpoint on a number of things at least the majority of the city council in terms of the relationship with the school district, in terms of their their um, outlook on growth and their perspective on housing. And I, I thought about it deeply and hard, conferred with my wife and my kids and they all said, go for it. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to help create a better world for them. And I also wanted to show them that if you're gonna um, gripe and moan about things and point out the problems, then you better be able to or be willing to step up and take a role in fixing them.
0: That's awesome, that's awesome. So um, folks, I know Charles, uh, he could be quite provocative, but he truly does walk the walk. He doesn't just complain, he affords solutions. Uh, And I think that's a great example for your kids. It's not to stay quiet. It's not to, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, complain. It's to step it up with some solutions. You know, If you see a problem or something you don't like, Come to the forefront with a solution, or at least start the conversation around what can we do to solve it, change it, or better yet, prevent it. So that's awesome. Um, how can people benefit from you know what you do right now in your role in Belmont?
1: Well, I can give you some concrete examples, and I'd also like to just say that I'm I try to make myself incredibly available. My my phone number is six five zero eight three two one six nine four. My email wait, is stone
0: slow down on the phone number because, sure. yeah, slow my down. phone
1: number is 650-832-1694 and my okay. email is cstone at Belmont.gov and i try to answer every phone call and every email that i get relating to my governmental role um so you know when folks have an issue with the city If they see an issue in the county or I, I serve on the San Mateo County Transit District Board and the Caltrain Board and the County Library Board, if folks have issues with these, I view my role as being there to help them, often through the use of staff as well, understand the problems that they're having a little better and then see if we can't get them fixed. So that's one you know, way that people can benefit from what I do right now, and I, I, I hope I've done a good job of that. In terms of how people have benefited from what I've done, I think you know, over the last uh, five and a half, six years, we've made some really positive changes in Belmont. We have new housing being built. We're focused on affordable housing for the first time in decades. We passed a, a half-cent sales tax, which is funding road improvements that were desperately needed, and for the first time in. In 20, 30 years, we're actually making progress on our deferred uh, maintenance for our infrastructure rather than falling deeper in the hole. And we made some zoning changes that allowed growing families the freedom and flexibility they need to accommodate uh, whether it's a, an unexpected newborn, an unexpected child or an unexpected boomerang child or a, an elderly parent that needs to live with them. We fought hard to make some changes that allow reasonable improvements and additions to their home so that they don't have to move out of Belmont just because their circumstances change. And I, I really think that that's benefited the community a lot, and I'm proud to be part of an awesome team that helped bring those changes across the finish line.
0: You know, I think one thing that I think is great about you, and I, look, I'm not a sycophant. I'm not just gonna, you know, oh, <laughs> you know, you know me. I will I'm laughing because
1: I know that's not true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I I will. I tell you what. I what I do like about you is is that you engage in principled negotiations. You will, in fact, um, explain the situation, be open to challenge by others, and then. Uh, listen with empathy and not judgment, and then explain the case, explain the case. So I do believe that when people misunderstand the facts, you're clear, you, you will share the facts and correct where they're wrong, or you're open to listening to that, which you may not have known. So that's awesome. Um, I will ask you this, what are a few things that people misunderstand about what you do or what you believe in or the causes you fight for? You know, let's set the record straight.
1: Wow, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'll start off with what you just said. You know, it was, it was interesting because that is my approach. You know, if, if six public speakers say something that I think is based in, in um, an inaccurate understanding of the facts, I often will respond to it from the day when it's time for council member comments or, or governing board members if it's on one of the boards I serve on. And I found that some people are very surprised by that because for a long time, I guess, it was kind of thought you just didn't do that as an elected official, that it was much safer just to remain quiet, and nod and and say, well, I heard you, but I'm going to do this other thing instead. Um, And and I think some people I've been told don't like it and they feel like it's it's argumentative. And, And I think what they're what they're the disconnect we're having there is I want people to have full transparency into my decision making. And I don't want to just sit there and nod and, and and pretend like I'm agreeing and give lip service to things. I want them to understand. So I think one pe- one thing people misunderstand is they think that sometimes I'm arguing when I, when I say with respect, I, I heard what you said and I don't agree and here's why. What I'm doing is trying to make sure they fully understand how I'm making decisions. And I, I think the other big thing that comes to my mind, there's two actually, is one that I'm Rapidly pro-development and uh, I think it's easy to get characterized like that in a a town in a county that for the better part of 30 years didn't build much of anything especially not enough housing but in truth I'm just a fan of transit oriented smart growth and affordable housing and and that's mostly because folks like my parents folks that I thought of as truly middle class back in the day lower middle class can't afford to live here anymore and that's unacceptable to me and and the last one which kind of makes me chuckle every now and then is Um, I I started getting wind a couple of years ago and and direct comments from people on social media that somehow I was a a very privileged person, and I am in many ways, but that I I grew up uh, wealthy in the hills of Belmont. And I had to chuckle because my my first home was a very humble two-bedroom apartment on 89th Street in Daly City. And we lived there for five years until my parents struggled and made huge sacrifices to get us into a small house on the hill in San Bruno because they wanted me to have a yard. And we rented that until I was 14 when my mom inherited just enough money that we could barely afford to buy a house in the San Mateo Village. I mean, I still remember the 1991 Plymouth Colt. E for economy that my mom bought. It was the first time she'd bought a new car in her life. It was when I was 15 or 16 and I think she spent all of $9,000 on it and she just couldn't believe she was giving herself such a huge luxury. I I, I remember vividly going to the dealership in Daly City with her and and, uh, she had the dealer take out the digital clock from the dashboard because it would save us 50 bucks. Anyway, um, um, I, I didn't grow up poor. I certainly don't want to give off that impression. I, I never had to worry about a roof over my head or where my next meal would come from. But um, I certainly wasn't well off, nor did I grow up in the in the uh, rather tony areas in the hills of the peninsula.
0: You know, I want to say something about that, because I think that people need to be careful about the extremes. Because you know, we all work so hard to get someplace we want to be, and then we punish people who made it, who got there, or who reached their dream or their goal, or um, see, folks, he's very important. People are calling (laughs) it right now. They want to hear from him right now. Um, you know, he gave his phone number out twice. They're dialing in right now.
1: <laughs> and now they're going to say he's not even answering.
0: <laughs> no, folks. Wait till after the show to call him. But yeah, no, I think that's an amazing story. And, and I think some people throw that out there at you on purpose. And some people throw that out there, um, you know, not realizing that that's just wrong. They're, they're wrong. It's wrong information. Others know it's wrong and they're doing it on purpose. But we shouldn't punish people for working hard and realizing their dreams. Um, You know, that's why you all work hard, right? So no one works hard just to stay where they are, right? Or, you know, that's kind of the rat on the wheel, getting nowhere fast. So you did mention a couple of things that, uh, you know, I am not a believer in moratorium on growth. I think that's the death knell for any city. Um, I used to live in New England and the great, once great city of Brock, I mean, Brockton Mass was once a thriving city and they foolishly put a moratorium on business growth and who was affected the people who lived there there were no more jobs available for people who lived there and now it's a tumbleweed town so you've got a fan in me when it comes to smart growth but i know that housing uh is also an issue so i want to ask you you know there's a severe lack of housing in california driven by a booming economy and lots of jobs so you know, some people blame the cities for failing to allow housing, and proposals like Scott Wiener's Senate Bill 50 would limit local control over permits and entitlements for new housing. How do you balance the need for more housing with a city's desire to control future growth? I mean, tell me your feelings on that. Definitely. Well,
1: it's a great question. It's the billion dollar question confronting not only the peninsula, but the Bay Area. And I guess I'd start from a point of we really have to have a regional holistic viewpoint, but also be respectful of, of local control and the realities of the mechanisms we have to work within. Um, you know, I, I I've noticed and I don't like that there's been a little bit of, let's, let's target San Mateo County and point out their jobs, housing imbalance, which is a very real thing. But you know, San Francisco is a real big city. It it is the metropolis of the area, along with San Jose. And for decades, they underbuilt housing. From 2010 to 2017, their jobs to housing ratio was eight to one. So it's not like anybody's been doing a great job. And candidly, while we need to do our part on the peninsula, when I stay overnight in a hotel in the south of Market and I'm on the, the 12th floor and I can look straight across to the financial district in Union Square and not see any other buildings, that high, it tells me that San Francisco's got a lot more they can contribute as well. Now, with that said, um, the the county of San Mateo has only recently really started waking up to the fact that we've got to build housing, it's got to be transit oriented, and that we've got to do this quicker than we have, and we are. SB 50, in my opinion, was well-intentioned. I like Senator Weiner quite a bit. I'm a fan of his. I love his priority on housing, but I think it went a little too far, and I think it could have been tweaked in some ways that would have made it more palatable to a lot of people. My real fear, Susan, and I lived this the first few years on my city council, was that if you go too far, too fast, you lose the people you need, and you often end up seeing a backlash or a pendulum swing too far the other way, and you make less progress than you want. And I firmly believe that if F- SB50 had passed as it, was, um, as, it, as it was written at the time, it was under consideration. I think when single-family homeowners uh, started seeing four-story, three-story apartment buildings going up smack dab in the middle of their neighborhoods, I think that folks with a heck of a lot of money and equity in their home and time would have formed together and started trying to have statewide legislation to overturn it. I think that there are smarter ways to go about making the type of progress we need.
0: What kind of role do you think, um, I think my, the cost of development plays a role too. I mean, what what, what is that you know, what kind of role for developers? I mean, the cost of construction is huge. So people who do demand housing and want housing, I mean, you know, what do you think that plays, the role that plays? I mean, they think cities can control this, but sometimes it's not up to cities. Sometimes it's, you know, developers are, you know, those who do want housing. Uh, on the other side, they they're, the developers' hands are tied because the cost is so incredibly high to, you know what do you think
1: of that It's absolutely true, and you know uh, the way that i the way that i uh, the, <laughs> the way that that I think about it is this we need affordable housing in the bay Area. we need affordable housing in San Mateo county. we need affordable housing in Belmont. The best chance we've had to get it is to build on government land because we have more control we own the land for instance, in Belmont we have and land owned by the successor to the redevelopment agency and, and each parcel that we have that 's big enough has some sort of project in the pipeline for hundred percent affordable low income and, and lower than low income housing um, but we are right when you talk about the private sector and what they can do, they can give you ten to fifteen percent affordable, but then you 're aw- aw- awful awfully limited in what you can get in terms of prevailing wage or um uh, project labor agreements things that i believe in and so it's a really tough bind for everyone to be in right so i'm not a sacramento elected but if i were what i would be pushing for is a huge pot of matching funds for projects that would go 30 40 50 percent affordable because you've hit the nail on the head this is an economics problem in many ways And unless we're willing to have government help subsidize the cost of these units, you can't expect a private developer to go broke trying to give us the affordable housing we need.
0: So Charles, once again, I think you say things that some people are afraid to say, and I'm proud of that. Um, You're pretty impressive. So let me ask you this, what actionable advice or tips could you give folks out there? Let's get back to those issues that, um, this show focuses on regularly, um, the actionable items or tips that you can give men and others who care about equity in the, in the workplace. Let's re- bring it back to equity in the workplace.
1: Well, I'll, I'll preface my comments by saying that as uh, that, that often, as is the case as a father and a husband, I get it wrong, but I'll uh-huh. do my best in, in answering the question. Um, so being a strong ally and helping to build a bench of of female leaders in your and people of color leaders in your yes. particular field or industry is incredibly important. Historically on the peninsula, local elected leaders have been mostly white men. We have a, a wall of mayors in, in Belmont, I think you've seen it. It's it's all these photos. Yes. And the majority of the faces staring back at you are white men, candidly usually older white men. Um, And I'm really proud of the progress we've made in Belmont since 2013. We've had the first Asian-American woman, African-American woman, and Asian-American male serve as council members. And we've also ensured as much as we can that our commissioners remain fairly diverse. Um, So creating opportunities for women to get the experience and bona fides they need to run for local office is incredibly important to me. And, And I've been really buoyed by the fact that the hard work I and others have done. In Belmont has paid off, not only on the city council. Um, you know, Since I've been elected, I've worked hard to help two women of Indian descent get uh, elected to the school board, in addition to backing either the appointment of le- or election of four other women for a local office in Belmont. Um, and out of these six candidates I supported, five have ended up serving on either the council or the school board. So I think powerful, powerful thing men can do, a powerful thing that men can do to help gender equity is to be mindful and to listen carefully. And, and if you do that well, it helps eliminate some of the biases that have led to inequity. And, and I think the next best thing you could do is to make sure that the women in your field or your industry know that you're an ally and that you're there to help if wanted. And I add the if wanted part because uh, I certainly know as a man that men, have a tendency to inject themselves into situations where sometimes, candidly, they're not wanted and maybe it isn't the best thing for them to do. I've certainly been guilty of it in my life. It can, it can come off as patronizing and often sometimes isn't helpful. So, so to me, one of the most powerful things we can do is, is just really make sure that folks know we're there, we're an ally, and we wanna help. And when asked to help, get into gear and help as much as you can, because we need the parity, we need the equity. It's the only right thing for our world.
0: I love, I love everything you just said. It's so great. So one quick thing I'd like to say in addition to that is um, do, do ask, you know, do ask. And if a woman says yes, offer not only mentorship, but perhaps sponsorship, you know, sometimes women don't even know when they're being sponsored, but sponsorship is different than mentorship and sponsorship is fantastic. So, if more men would sponsor women in the workplace, that would be great. Step up to the plate speak you know speak volumes for her on her behalf, even if she doesn 't know. Give her an opportunity to lead. I know sometimes men in leadership positions don 't recognize that women lead differently um, let 's say for example i 'm in a meeting and I think i 've come up with a solution that we 've been you know pondering this problem for months, and I say to my team oh, I have the solution, I think I have the solution, would you review this? Tell me what I've gotten right and wrong and what am I missing? And the man in the room might think, oh, she's seeking validation, can't make a decision, needs input from others, she's not ready for the promotion. But that's not true. I lead collaboratively, I lead transformationally, I'm seeking input from others because I'm a good leader. And that's just a different way of leading. So when men recognize that that's another form of leadership, They can sponsor me and they can give me that raise or promotion or title I deserve. And so um, raising awareness about the differences in how we communicate and how we lead, that's helpful. So thank you for that. And thank you for recognizing you should ask first because, yeah, jumping right in and being the hero once more is not always appreciated. But if it is appreciated and needed, it's great to have. Let me ask you one last question before we wrap up and share the ways that people can connect with you and contact you. Um, You surely have not always had it easy. I'm not saying that you have it easy now, but I'm saying there's probably been a time in your life where you've had a challenge or setback. I like people to share those challenges and setbacks and how they've overcome them because they're more relatable to the audience. Um, So tell me what kind of challenge or setback did you face and how did you overcome it?
1: Um, Well, you know, I think the most top of mind recent challenge I have had is probably the the biggest challenge I've had in my life and it's one that I know you can relate to. Uh, I'm an only child and I was part of a very close-knit family as a result of that and you know my my folks had me when they were older my mom was 39 and my dad was 46 and that was uncommon in 1975 people used to ask if my mom was my grandma um, and watching them decline mm-hmm. and then bringing them into our home to live with us i think was the most challenging thing i've ever done and my wife's ever done and we have as a couple have, have ever done the emotional physical and spiritual toll of watching the beings who created you, nurtured you, were always there for you, just pass through that final stage of their life is incredibly difficult. And it's even harder when you're faced with the realities of of playing the roles of child, caregiver, husband, wife, father, mother, all in the same physical space. Um, Both of my parents lived with my family off and on from 2009 to 2018. My mom passed away uh, with my wife and me at her side in our home last July or July of 2018. My dad passed away in 2014. Um, I couldn't have gotten through it without the support and love of my wife and my kids who are just amazing humans. I mean, the amount of of learning and, and um facing grim realities that my kids had to see on, on a daily basis is unfathomable to me at that age. And they handled it with such grace and compassion and love for their grandparents that it, it, it buoyed me and it made me want to be a better man.
0: Charles, I am just, my eyes are welling up because yes, I can relate. And, and people who have not been through this can only imagine but even in their greatest imaginings it's nowhere near what the reality is it is the biggest struggle ever to be the caregiver for someone who is not the person you knew them to be so um i feel for you and i have such great respect for you and i am in awe that your whole family went through this with with your parents and and just you know thank you for sharing that that was a big share I will say that, um, you're a fantastic guest, you're a fantastic public servant, you're a fantastic husband and father, you're a really fantastic friend, and I'll tell you what, I'm not in Belmont, I can't vote for you, but hopefully someday <laughs> I will be able to vote for you, and if that day comes, you've got my vote. Um,
1: you are too you know, kind.
0: <laughs> I'm not too kind, I mean, those who know me know that I'm kind, but I'm not, I'm not too kind, so that, that's even a better uh, hat tip to you. Um, how can people connect with you?
1: So my, my phone number, like I said, is 650-832-1694. My website, which is undergoing a revamp right now, is charles-stone.com. You can email me at either charles at charles-stone.com or cstone at belmont.gov. On Facebook, uh, you can find me at Stone Law. Uh, Twitter: that's c-s-t-o-n-e-b-m-o-n-t and the same on instagram so uh, uh people should be able to find me one of those ways for sure I think.
0: awesome awesome don't be shocked if people aren't calling you soon and, <laughs> you know pinging you and tweeting you and maybe even knocking on your door thank you so much for spending time with us today and folks we will write a blog about this we will share um uh Charles's bio and some pictures and then we will put the podcast into that blog and I'll share it with my 15,000 followers on social media and you can look for it on Charles's social media platforms as well. Have a great day everybody. Thanks Charles for being here.
1: Thank you Susan.